We're going to be in uh, the Gospel of John, chapter 11. If you are new here, I'm glad that you're here. My name is Ryan, and I'm your pastor. If you are looking for the book of John, start at the beginning of your Bible and start flipping until you see names you recognize. If you're looking at things like Habakkuk and Nahum, keep going. If you get to weird names of funky cities like Galatians and Ephesians, back up. It's right there in the New Testament. Book of John, chapter 11, is where we'll be camping out today. Life is greater than death. Let's pray, and then we'll jump into God's Word together. Heavenly Father, I thank you that you give us life, life abundant. I thank you that you not only give us life, but your very being is life and resurrection. Lord, I pray that today you would give us an eternal perspective I pray that today you would give us an understanding of your timing for the struggles that we are all going through, and that you would give us hope for tomorrow and strength to stand on. Father, we love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, you guys have these bugs here that I just recently met called love bugs. Have you all seen love bugs? Right? I murdered at least 7,000 of these love bugs. Um, they're here for the briefest time. And I, I'm a researcher. I didn't learn a ton in seminary except for how to guilt people and run churches. But I did learn how to do a lot of research. So when I first heard about these love bugs, I'm like, what are these bugs that are attached literally at the hind end? And it looks like they're flying in opposite directions, but one bug is bigger and always wins. And some people said, you know, I've heard that they were a a study that some University of Florida was doing to eliminate mosquitoes and it went terribly wrong because there's still mosquitoes that exist. Uh, so I did research, I went online, I went through all the college studies, I found out that that's an urban myth. It wasn't actually the college creating love bugs. They migrated probably from South America where they still exist today. But my favorite thing about love bugs is that for two weeks they rule Tampa. I mean, I don't know where else they are in Florida, but I know for those two weeks, like car wash owners are crushing it in their business. I know for those two weeks, whoever makes the, um, the, the laundry machine dryer wipes, if you don't know, that's a secret that I learned, you're welcome. Those dryer wipes take it right off your windshield. That's a free one for church, just so you know. Now, those guys are pumped, but here's the thing about love bugs. What I do is I put myself in other people's shoes. Sometimes that means I put myself in other people's perspective. Sometimes that means I wonder what it'd be like to be a bug. And if you're a love bug, when you're first starting your empire rising, life must be pretty good. Because you're coming out of the hatchling from wherever you've been hiding since last fall, and all of a sudden armies of your kinsmen come and they rise to the occasion of destroying the universe. And for a brief two-week period, you are one of the most powerful, prominent, living beings populating the highways and byways of Hillsborough County. And granted, you go through many battles and you lose many wars to the Cadillac Escalades and the suburban grills, but at the end of the day, if you're a love bug, you've got to feel pretty pumped for about a week and a half because your kingdom is thriving, your population is growing. There, every single love bug I saw was making love to another love bug, hence the name. So your life is good. And then all of a sudden, your peers start dying at a rapid pace. And I haven't got this far in my research. I have no idea what happened to these bugs. Literally, my house would be covered with little black and red-budded bugs. And then one day, 
They're gone. Not a carcass to be found. I don't know if the mosquitoes ate them. I don't know if it's the lizards that are plentiful here. I've got about 300 lizards that live in my little covered patio area. Whatever the reason, they're gone. Now, I hear they're going to come back again in the fall with a vengeance and sticky guts. And one of the things that struck me as fascinating about these love bugs is that their perspective, their lifespan is two weeks long. And for us, it's just an annoyance that we live with. We say, oh, here come the love bugs. A, that means my car's messed up. B, that means it's going to get blazing hot. And then they're gone. So often, I think, our lives would find more freedom if we could get the right perspective. If we could step back for a minute and see that our 80 years to God is like a two-week season of love bug. That we're here, we do a couple of things, a few of us breed, and then we're done. And that's it. And I know that sounds grim, but today we're looking at a passage that, that is a little bit grim. It's about one of the topics that's taboo in our society. Sex used to be taboo back in like the 50s, and now it's just regular. Death now is one of the biggest taboos that you can find that nobody wants to talk about. We don't want to talk about death. We don't want to deal with death. We, as a matter of fact, we do things to avoid feeling bad as much as we can around death. And I've been at funerals, many, many funerals, more than anyone my age should probably have to go through. And I've seen what we do. We get the flowers. We get the best picture. We do the slideshow. And it's beautiful to remember those things. One day, we're all going to die. One day, we're all going to be in the, the casket, in the urn. And on that day, who you believe Jesus is will be of utmost importance. And that's where we are today. So here comes Jesus the end of his ministry. Now, in case you're a Bible scholar, I just want to point out that in the Gospel of John, he did seven miracles. And they were all to prove something. And the one today is the last of his public miracles. First, he did the water to wine. I know you all remember that one because I still get comments about it pretty much every day where someone will come up and say, hey, Jesus made the best wine. Or, hey, 750 bottles of wine that Jesus made. Um, but let's not miss the point. The point is that Jesus is the source of all blessing and God's future. Then Jesus healed the official son. This points to Jesus as the, the healer and the giver of life. Nobody has control of life like Jesus has control of life. Then we had the healing of the invalid, the lame guy who was paralyzed for 38 years. And Jesus said, get up, take up your mat and walk. Pointing to Jesus as the father's co-worker because he said, I only do what the father tells me to do. But the father told me to heal you, but not the other guys. Then we have the feeding of the 5,000, stealing the kids' lunchbox, breaking bread and fish and feeding 5,000. And then we have walking on water in John 6, where Jesus walks to the water and says, I am the God of all creation. I am he who created the waters, created the winds, and I can do whatever I please on them. Then he heals the man born blind, showing that he gives not only physical sight, but spiritual sight. And now here we are. His friend has died. And his friend was in the process of dying when Jesus found out that he was ill. But Jesus said, we're going to hang on here for two days. Because he had a plan of what he was going to do when his friend had died. We're going to pick up, we're going to read quite a big chunk. So just uh, follow with me. If you don't have a Bible, up on the screen, the scripture should be behind me. John 11, verse 17. Now, when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Everyone say, four days. Four days. 
Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, listen carefully, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Then Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. So this is first, older sister. Now we've got to get something down here. God's timing is not our timing. As much as we would want it to be God, our timing, it is never that way. But, uh, can you all do this for me? Can you all put your arms one way? This way. Do you guys know what that means? I know all the Gators fans are like, yeah, it's a sign for Gators. No, this is math. It's a subject that we all hate until seventh grade. It's, this is a sign for greater than. So I want you to understand today that God's timing is greater than our timing. And I know, I know, I know it is uncomfortable. Because do you want to know when God shows up? If God works in a workday like an 8 to 5, his timing is right at 4.50. You need that job, you need it at 12.30. You need it at 2 o'clock. You need it at 3 o'clock. All of a sudden it's 4.50 and you're like, God, I'm not going to eat. And he's like, oh yeah, I got this for you, 4.55, you're welcome. Now why does God do that? Or why does God do it like when you just need money at just the right time? Because some things happen that go crazy, like your water heater explodes, maybe you have a leak, maybe your mailbox gets run over once or maybe twice. Maybe you have some things like that in your life. You say, God, where am I going to get the money? And then all of a sudden, it just starts showing up. All of a sudden, you get blessed. All of a sudden, you get a rebate that you didn't know you had coming. But it's right there at 4.55 that you get it. And people say, why does this happen over and over again? I think God, God's timing is greater than our timing for one reason. Because He wants us to realize that when we depend on Him, that is the best place that we can be in life. That when we are finding ourselves constantly saying, God, I need you, God, I trust you, God, I will embrace your timing, that in that place, when we can finally find some settling peace there, we can just know that He does it. And I know if you're a new Christian or if you're not yet a follower of Jesus, you're thinking, well, that just sounds like luck. Well, I've had 16 years of friggin' amazing last-minute luck where time after time, and don't get me wrong, I still get weary and worried and anxious time after time. I, it's not like I'm getting great at this thing called the Christian life. I still get to 445 and I'm like, God, you've done this before. I could really just use some sign that you're going to do it again. And then it's like he just waits a little bit longer and says, just depend, just lean on me, just believe. And I do, and then he shows up, and I think, there you are again. And, and I think after maybe the 200th time of it, it's gotten a little bit more like, ah, this, I get it, God. Your timing greater than my timing. Because at the end of that scenario, every time, I worship. At the end of that scenario, every time, I give him the glory, I give him the credit, and I'm not walking away patting myself on the back saying, good job, Tarona. Way to pull through a tough one. So here we go. God's timing greater than our timing. Next though, Lazarus is dead. How many days? Four days. Four days. 
They didn't do what we, did, what we do nowadays. They didn't have embalming procedures. They didn't paint you up like a clown and put you in the box. Um, what they did is they would wrap you with linens. They would put spices and oils on you to try to mask the, the smell long enough to get you in the tomb. Now, this is somebody that Jesus loved. This is not a random person. This is somebody that Jesus knew and grew up with. It seems that he's got this relationship with the sisters. And two days prior to Lazarus dying, they let Jesus know, hey, your friend is sick. Some of you right now I know are sick. Some of you right now are wondering, okay, how long am I going to be here for? Some of us have different struggles. We're wondering, how long am I going to survive for? What's my purpose in life? We have a whole host of, of students who have graduated. They're right on the cusp of going into a, adulthood. They're right on this next chapter of their adventure. They're not thinking about the end of life yet because really until you're like 27 to 35, you're, you're basically invincible. That's pretty much when everyone does bungee jumping, skydiving, you Instagram it. After that, you're like, I've got kids. This is dumb. I'm staying inside. But once you get older, once life hits you, once you have kids, all these different perspectives change. Who, what you think about life changes. The first time you hold your firstborn child, there's nothing that changes you, at least nothing that has changed me quite like that. I mean, like, I loved my wife when we were just married and it was just the two of us for those, like, six months or whatever until she got pregnant. But really, I was like, babe, you're cool, but Jesus is cooler. Like, if I died now, I'm all good. And then I had my son Jackson. I just remember holding him. And then I thought in that moment, as many of you parents have thought, I will do anything for you. I will die for you. I will lay in front of a car for you. If I had to go to hell so that you could have eternal life, I would do that for you. And in that moment, so much perspective changes about what God's plan is and who God is and what the end of life means because now I'm not just all about me, I'm all about this baby and this family that's growing. Well, Jesus is here in this story to alter Martha's perspective, to take what she believes about life and flip it upside down. Because she said, Jesus, if you were here, my brother would be alive. Now, we didn't read this verse. This is in the beginning of chapter 11. When Jesus was told that his friend was sick, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Your illness, as weird as this sounds, is for the glory of God, so that Jesus can be lifted up. Your Cancer is for the glory of God. I'm not saying it's easy. I'm not saying it's good. It is a product of sin, and it is hell on earth to go through some of these diseases. But it is for God's glory. And, and we, that's a big churchy word. It's like a stained glass word. Glory, 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 glory. What is God's glory? Uh, I always go back to Isaiah 6. There's this scene that I love. I'm drawn to it. I'll bring it up all the time. Where God uh, gives Isaiah a vision of the throne. Have you, do you guys know this story? Isaiah gets sucked up to the vision of God. There's angels. There's seraphim on each side of God. And they're screaming, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God. And the whole earth is full of His, what would you say? Glory, right? But if you're just like me, if you just read books, it doesn't make sense. Holy, holy, holy. They just said this God is holy. The whole earth should be full of his holiness. But it's, it's not that word. It's the word for glory. The weightiness. I believe glory 
is importance of God, the weight of God, the set-apartness of God. So when we have cancer, when we go through something terrible in our life, when we have that car wreck, when we lose a loved one, it is not without purpose. God has a purpose in every single thing that happens in your life. The purpose is to draw you closer to Himself, to get you to release your grip on this life and have an eternal perspective. And Martha said, if you'd been here, Jesus, he'd be alive. And then here's one of the famous I am statements. Because Martha says, I know you'll bring him back to life during the resurrection. And Jesus says, I am the resurrection. Now this is very important. Very important. Uh, I had dinner last night with a doctor. He's a heart surgeon. And I've, I've often thought about what it'd be like to be a heart surgeon because I've watched Grey's Anatomy like the rest of you. To hold someone's life literally in your hand. Like their beating heart is in the palm of your hand. Now, many of us have experienced death of loved ones, death of those close to us, death of friends, families, neighbors. What we don't often embrace in Christianity is that it's not that Jesus is giving life to us, it's that He is life. When he stood before Martha, and Martha crying probably in sorrow, said, Jesus, if you were here, my brother would be alive. Jesus saying, well, I'll resurrect him. He'll be alive again. I know in the resurrection. No, no, Martha, you don't get it. Where I go is life. And here's the cool thing. This is just a little nugget I'm going to throw out there and let it sit. When Jesus ascended into heaven, he sent the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ, down into his followers. So now the Spirit, who was, who was guiding Jesus, moving Jesus, dwelling within Jesus, guess where that Spirit that is life now lives? In you. Not like pitily, oh God, I'm so in need of you to help me get through this final exam. Like he wants to hear that prayer but not with faith that that's all you're leaning on him for. This is the God who in a few moments is about to reanimate dead tissue. Reanimate dead tissue. There is not a real Frankenstein. This is the only time up to this point in history where some guy has been dead four days and God rips him back to life. And that spirit, that power, that life is in you. So here it is. Man, this is the best. Enter little sister. Verse 28. When she had said this, sorry, she went and called for her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house consoling Mary, or consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, See how he loved him? But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind also have kept this man from dying? Okay, let's get the scene right in our minds. Guy died. That's painful. Sister's grieving. And and because none of you are Jewish 
people living in this century. I need to paint the picture. They would hire whalers, professional whalers, to mourn with the family for the time of the funeral. So these are people that they had it down, and they would be, it would be a loud whale, a crying, and I, I can't really emulate it, but I, I'd imagine it sounded like a coyote in a trash compactor, just going up and down, going back to the tomb, literally howling, crying for this family. The body had been in for four days. Jesus is not unaware of what he's about to do. He's about to raise Lazarus from the dead. He's about to bring a dead guy back to life. Now, for those of you science nerds in here, think about all that that means. I don't know where you start, but I'm guessing you start with the neurons and the brain, then you start pumping the heart, and then all of a sudden you say, okay, I'm going to bring this dead tissue back to life, these, these cells that have broken down back to life, the muscles reforming, because in four days, you're not a pretty picture. I've left a hamburger out for three days, and if it's not from McDonald's, it decays pretty quickly. Jesus is about to bring him to, back to life, and Mary says, if you'd been here, if you'd been here, then he'd be alive. And, and there's a few words we have to pay attention to here. One is the phrase, deeply moved. It, it's a word probably better translated that he was indignant. He was kind of angry. And I don't think he was angry at the situation uh, that the people were sad. I think he was angry because Jesus' friend was dead because of the effects of sin. Jesus hates sin. In my household, my kids are not allowed to use the word hate except for two things. And unfortunately, they don't listen to me because they're sinners. But they're only allowed to hate sin and Satan. So when my son Jackson, he's a little bit of a diva, he'll throw his head around and get all sad. Oh, I hate this and hate whatever, I hate this food. I'm like, buddy, you cannot use the word hate, especially in regards to pizza. What can you say I hate? I hate sin and the evil one. Okay, that's the only thing you can hate. And I think in this moment, Jesus' divinity and his humanity were colliding because he knew he was about to raise him on one hand, but on the other, he could not bear to see people he loved in utter emotional, emotional turmoil and torment. So, in this angered state, angry at sin, he does something that I think is absolutely stunning. He wept knowing that he was about to raise Lazarus from the dead. I, I'm not that guy. That's not my game plan. If I'm about to raise some dude from the dead, I'm, I'm going to be kind of smiling. And I'm going to wait until someone says, why are you smiling? And then I'd be like, kazow! And then they'd raise. But Jesus' heart, for you and for me, for Mary and Martha, is immensely more enormous than you can fathom. If you don't think that his heart is, is crying out with you when you're at 450 and you have a dire need that's not getting met, he is right there in the middle of that. If you don't think that when you're burying a friend or family member that he is not grieving alongside of you, you're missing this verse. Because we don't have a God who is far off. I know that we can feel that way sometimes. I know that sometimes a prayer feels like it bounces off this wall, that wall, and lands on the ground in front of you. But I promise you that Jesus, the Son of God, is walking with you in a way where he wants you to know, I'm with you, and my tears are with your tears. And I love the way the New Living Translation uh, in, translates Psalm 56, 8, that God would catch all of our tears in a bottle. That every time you're crying, God's right there. I think it's tears of joy and tears of sorrow. I think this last week when everyone was graduating and all the mothers are just streaming down tears of pride, 
that God's right there like, man, this is an overtime job. These, these ladies are just crying all over the place. And the one dad that's the emotional wreck as well, you know, he's just crying. No offense. If you guys cry, I'm a crier. I cried when Mufasa died in The Lion King. Don't worry. So here he goes. Jesus loved this man and was going to bring him back. Deeply moved again, verse 38, came to the tomb. It was a cave and the stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead for four days. I don't know how you do that, like at a funeral, with people crying, dead guy, living, the guy who is life, saying, remove the stone. And if it's like one of those lean-ins, like, Jesus, this is going to be funky. That's what the Greek says, it's going to smell ripe. And Jesus doesn't care. Remove the stone. Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So the stone is removed. Jesus lifted his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. I've prayed for a lot of people. I've prayed for people in wheelchairs that they would walk. I've prayed for people who were deaf that they would hear. It's, I've not seen a healing like that that I've been, I haven't prayed for someone and seen the healing. I've seen miracles that, that I haven't done, but I haven't been the person to lay hands on. I've never mustered up the courage, partially because I think it would just be cruel, to pray for a dead person. Now Jesus, in this moment, has gone back into a city where one chapter before they were trying to kill him. One chapter before they were getting rocks to stone him to death. And two days later, he's back, and he says that he prays this prayer so that everyone around him will see. This is the last of his big miracles before his own resurrection, and I think it's very intentional. It's the seventh miracle in the book of John. Seven in the Bible is always the number for completion. So this is Jesus completing his public ministry, and now he's going to retreat, and he's going to minister and encourage and equip those in his inner circle, but he's doing no more public ministry from this point forward. And I think that he chose raising Lazarus for a purpose. To let everyone know what was coming. And to let everyone know that you think death is the last thing? It is not the last thing. Because eternal life, eternal life is greater than this life. Jesus' heart for you is greater than your heart for self. And finally, Jesus' words are greater than death's grip. Uh, as you know, if you've attended for any amount of time that I've been the pastor here for these six, seven weeks, um, I, I really do want to die. And I know it sounds morbid. I know it's weird. Um, but the more that I read this book and the more that I know Jesus, the more that I can't wait to see him. The more that I can't wait to have my last exhale, exhale here because to be absent from the body, I'm going to be with God. So I want to breathe out here and I'm either an old grandpa or a 35-year-old or a 50-year-old dying from too many awesome blossoms at Outback, whatever it is, I'm dying eventually. Like, I'm 
terrible at math, but I'm sure 10 out of 10 people die. And I think that statistic means all of us. And when I die here, I breathe in, standing in front of the most glorious being in the universe for whom my soul was made to be with. I cannot wait for that. So when I think about that, sometimes I bring that perspective to passages like this. A, Lazarus just got raised from the dead. B, he's probably bummed. Right? Like if you're with God for four earth days, I don't know how this works in sci-fi language, and then you get raised again. I don't know what that looks like. If it's like you're worshiping, you're singing your favorite worship song, and then all of a sudden it's like that vortex sucks you back, and you're like, no! And then you come out, and you're the first mummy that ever existed. No joke, last night, I don't know what the Weemses did to my kids. They babysat our kids. And when I picked up Jackson, the night before I'm preaching about this, on the way home, this mile drive, Jackson goes, Daddy, are there such thing as zombies? And I don't lie to my kids about anything. Like, I tell them the whole truth about Christmas from, like, day one. Because I don't want them to think, I'm like, okay, kids, unicorns, Easter bunnies, this guy, fake. Tooth fairy, me. Give me all the credit. I know, it's selfish. So he asked me, Daddy, are there any such things as zombies? And I'm preaching this passage today, and I think, well, living dead. So I say, I think so. And then this look of fear comes across his face. <laughs> And I'm thinking this passage, I'm thinking when Jesus was resurrected, the dead rose and walked around Jerusalem and then presumably died again. So I'm thinking, yeah, zombies do exist. Like, I'm not going to lie to you, kid, they're real. And he goes, are they green? That's possible. They could be green. He didn't sleep last night, I don't think. Can you imagine being the sisters of Lazarus? Of seeing your brother come out. Aside from A, the miracle of life, Jesus himself walking up to a tomb saying, roll it away, boom, boom, God, thank you, get up, come out. And, and one uh, famous commentator, church history guy, St. Augustine or Augustine, if you're really pretentious, uh, he said that Jesus had to say, Lazarus, come out, because if he just said, come out, all the dead cats from that whole neighborhood would be coming out. <laughs> Everybody's just popping up like little daisies. Lazarus, come out. Because he is life. And you're probably terrified when this person's coming out. You're probably wondering, what's he going to look like? But Jesus is not partial life. He's all life. Jesus is not, I'm going to heal you most of the way. It's, I'm going to heal you all the way. I cannot wait for my resurrection body. I cannot wait for when I die, my soul goes to be with God during this intermediate period, and then the end comes, Jesus, white horse, flame, sword, death, end, new body. If you get cremated, your ashes are going to swirl up like some movie, and then boom, you get your new body. It's going to be awesome. I'm going to have all my abs that I was meant to have. Lazarus, though, I'll bet you was one of the most faithful missionaries till the day that he died again. I think it's cool that he could say, hey, I was born and born again. And then I died, and then I'm going to die again. He's the only guy that can do that, really. Except, like, that's it. Just die, die again. Can you imagine how much boldness you have if you've already died? Lazarus, if you don't stop talking about Jesus, we're going to kill you. Kill me? Are you kidding me? Here's where you aim. 
Give it your best shot. I was going to sing, let me have your best. Never mind, I'm not going to do that. Well, Ryan, this is all great. What does this have to do with Monday morning? What does this have to do with starting college this fall? How do I live and come to this Jesus so that it makes a difference? I'm glad that Jesus is life. I'm glad that his timing is greater than our timing. I'm glad that, glad that eternal life is greater than this life. I'm glad that his heart for me is greater than my heart for me, that he cares for me and loves me. I'm glad that his words overpower death's grip. But what does that have to do for Monday morning? Because today we're going to go home, we're going to nap, we're going to wake up. And here's where it has to hit home for you. When we are born in this life, we are all spiritually dead. Ephesians chapter 2 says, we are dead in our trespasses. Lazarus was dead as a doornail. When Lazarus came back to life, it wasn't like Jesus went in and got the little defibrillator and hooked it up and did CPR. He brought a dead man back to life. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus Christ, you are absolutely dead in your sin. Your capabilities to moving toward God are zero, like a dead man, dead to sin. And you, you say to me, well, I could still get dressed, I eat food, I enjoy things, I could pray, I can talk. Yes, you can do all those things. That's on a horizontal life level. You cannot make one vertical movement toward God until you have been brought to life. And in the same way that once you are brought to life, we call it being born again, there are still areas of our life that are trapped in deadness. And you want to know how Jesus got Lazarus out of the grave? He didn't say, roll away the stone. Lazarus, try harder! Because Lazarus was dead. I'm not going to sit here today and say, Sunset Bay Chapel, read more! Pray more! I'm going to say, Sunset Bay Chapel, we were born dead. You want to know how to come to Him? You go back to what Martha and Jesus talked about. Whoever believes in me will live forever. Sometimes we get lost up in this word believe. We think it just means like, oh, I kind of like, I trust, I think about. You need to believe in Jesus like you believe in a chair. You're thinking, what does that mean? Let me illustrate. I've, I've eaten lunch with a ton of you. I've gone out to dinner with a lot of you. We've had coffee. I've never seen one of you do this when going out to a coffee table, dinner table, whatever. I've never seen one of you do this. Walk over to the chair and do one of these. Never seen that. Never. I just had people over my house. Here's what you guys do. Boom. And you sit in it just trusting, this chair is going to hold me. This chair is going to catch me. I don't have to worry about it. It looks like it's from Pottery Barn. It's not. Joke's on you. You sit down. You trust the chair. This is what it means to believe. 
that you throw yourself on Jesus, trusting him to make it through tomorrow. Because I know that life is good for many of us right now because we're in the suburbs. We have the job. We have the 401k. We got a little bit in savings. We have a vacation coming up. Life is okay. It does not always stay okay. And to believe in Jesus means to throw yourself on him, to say, I trust that you will hold me up in the midst of my job falling apart, in the midst of my marriage being a train wreck, in the midst of my kid walking away from Christ, in the midst of my uncertainties about what it means now as you're starting college. What does this mean? How do I go to choose what I'm going to do for the rest of my life? Or where am I going to live for retirement? Or what am I going to do if I don't get the promotion? Throw yourself on Jesus and say, God, you're all the life that I need, and I'm satisfied in you. Every time you sit down on a chair this week, I want you to think about believing in Jesus with that much faith. Every time you take a running jump for your bed to escape from your children's wrath, I want you to think about that much faith in Christ. Because I don't check my bed. I don't check the chairs. I just jump in trusting that they'll catch me. And these are objects made out of metal and wood, not the creator of the universe. And his call to you today is, if you are not a Christian, live today. Believe in him. Throw your life onto him in that way today. And then you will be just as Lazarus was, unbound, having the linen cloths of death wrapped from you, and experiencing life like you've never had it before. Well, that's one of my favorite miracles. Next week, we're going to be in John chapter 15, talking about Jesus as the vine. All of this is, okay, this is Jesus' life. He's the resurrection. He's who we believe in. Next week is, okay, tangibly, Ryan, I need some ABCs, one, two, threes. What does it mean to abide in Jesus? That's next week. Uh, let's pray, and then we'll jump into the rest of our service. Father, your grace, God, sometimes I want to pray and just use churchy words. I'm not sure why. I thank you for dying for me. I thank you that you resurrected Lazarus, showed me how you save us, how you bring us spiritually dead to spiritually living. I thank you that you did it as the last of the big major signs in the Gospel of John so that we would know when you died that you'd come back. God, I love, I love, I love that you beat death to death. I love that we don't have to be afraid. I love that in our sorrows when we lose people, you are crying there with us in the pain. And now, God, I ask that those in here who walked in spiritually dead would walk out spiritually alive in Jesus' name. That as they heard your word proclaimed, you sparked life, you opened their eyes, you called them out of the grave. Lord, I pray for those in here who are already followers of you, that they would find that next level of faithfulness and joy and peace that is only had when we find ourselves trusting you evermore, every day. God, let every chair we sit in be a parable. Let every bed we jump in be a story to remind us of how we ought to trust you with an abandoned, total, complete falling into your arms, knowing that you will always catch us.